Well, here we are once again. Uh, we're going to pray before we get started. And then we're going to make sure we've got our Bibles open to Matthew 22. And we're going to see a little bit about how Jesus views Christian growth. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask for your help this morning as we come to your word. Uh, Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom, and help us, Lord, to understand and to apply this passage. Help us, Lord, all to grow as your people. Grow to Christian maturity, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in today's sermon, we're going to see the analogy of growing in Christian faith and what that looks like. But I should preface that by saying that there's not a list of rules, uh, things that we've got to do, step one, step two, step three. Uh, it's not a legalistic thing. Instead, I've said really what growing is, is growing as we're transformed to be more like Jesus. And how does that happen? Well, it happens over time, but what does it look like? Well, I've said that it looks like being able to do what Jesus says is the greatest and second greatest commandment. Uh, so that's really where we're going with this today. And I thought I'd start with a little illustration about growing plants, because as we moved from Leeton to Griffith uh, only about seven months ago, we had all sorts of little interesting pot plants and things there. And we took quite a number with us and we planted them in the garden over there at the manse. We've got a few herbs and a few flowers and things like that. They're in the ground, they're getting sunlight and water and all the things that plants need. Uh, and so what they're doing is they're growing. And hopefully in time we'll see uh, plenty of herbs and flowers and things from our garden. Now, uh, the Bible tells us a little bit about Christian growth being like a plant. Uh, Psalm 1 tells us about a, a person who's planted by streams of water. Uh, if the person meditates on God's word daily and has nothing to do with the sinners and mockers and the wicked, um, but delights in God's law, they're like the tree that is planted by streams of water. Uh, no matter the circumstances of life, no matter what's around them, they'll grow. No matter what they may encounter, they'll continue growing. Now, two weeks ago, we started this little series on Connect, Grow, Serve, Go. We're looking at connecting with Jesus. And we heard we're going to take up our cross as part of discipleship. And what we do is we devote our lives to following Jesus. We take up our cross and follow him. And last week, we continued on with our first series, uh, Sermon on Connect. Uh, and then we looked at what it means for us to connect with Jesus. Dave brought us God's word there. And this week we're moving on from connect to grow. Having come to saving faith in Jesus, what next? Well, last week we saw that Jesus connected even with sinners and tax collectors. And Matthew was the prime example of that. And so we're going to continue on with Matthew in his gospel, uh, recording a few more of Jesus' life events and things that he said and did. So we come to our passage today then in Matthew 22, in verse 34. Uh, you may remember last week the Pharisees got a mention as people who didn't like Jesus hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors. Well, Pharisees are at it again this week. And if you see on our next slide, 
uh, we're going to see that there's different factions within Jerusalem at the time. Uh, so the Sadducees had already tried to trap Jesus by asking him about uh, who would be married if a man had had multiple wives, who would be married to him in the new creation uh, because their base assumption was that there was no resurrection of the dead. There was no eternal life. So straight away, they're just saying, look, Jesus, your belief in this stuff is nonsense. We all know it's nonsense. And here's why. Because if there was a resurrection, it would cause all sorts of chaos because who would be married to whom? And it's all just a mess. But Jesus tricks them as though they've tried to trap him. He gets one up. And here we are again doing the same thing, this time with the Pharisees. Uh, so in verses 23 to 33, we've had the Sadducees. And now, verses 34 to 40, we have the Pharisees. Uh, they're a bit like political parties almost. Uh, don't quite think of them like that, but that's about the closest you'll get. Different factions vying for power within Jerusalem, which group will have the most influence over the people. And so I think the Pharisees have seen what Jesus did with the Sadducees and they're thinking, yes, this is good. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Sadducees, who we don't like, are looking stupid. We have an opportunity to look really good. We will be the smartest, most capable group and everybody will think we're great. If we can just trap Jesus, which shouldn't be hard, something those morons, the Sadducees, couldn't do, we super-duper intelligent, clever Pharisees will have no trouble with this at all. So one of them sidles up to Jesus and says, well, I've got a real tricky question. Okay, I'm feeling pretty smug and proud at this point. Jesus, of all the commandments, which one's the greatest? And you think, ooh, well, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, depending on which way you slice it. Uh, there's all sorts about how you build a house, what clothes you wear, what food you eat, what kind of sacrifices you offer to God, when you offer the sacrifices. Uh, of all of them, which one's the most important? Ooh, that's tricky. Because no matter which one you pick, there'll be 612 others that you didn't pick. And so this Pharisee could say, oh, well, you said this, Jesus, but that means you don't care about that. This other thing, whatever it might be, is the thing, hey, everybody, Jesus doesn't value this. If he says sacrifices, they'd say, oh, but what about food laws? And if he said food laws, they'd say, oh, what about this other thing? It's designed to trick him. doesn't matter what he says, he's doomed because as soon as he opens his mouth and says, oh, well, this thing is the most important, they'll turn around and say, oh, well, it's clear Jesus is no good, no one should listen to him because he doesn't value whatever. What a disgrace. But instead of it, Jesus being disgraced, it's the Pharisees. So Jesus has quoted this great passage from Deuteronomy 6. Now, if you've got a Bible there, open it up, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Do yourself a favour, look that up. Jesus replies with this, and he gets it from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The most important commandment is to love God with your whole being, everything, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, that's the greatest commandment. 
That's the thing that we should be most concerned with, how to love God completely. And so it's not a list of rules about what to do. At no point could I tell you, well, in order to love God more, you have to do this. Love is an action, of course. It's a thing that we must do. But for all of us, it will look different. We've all got our own unique struggles of life, our own besetting sins and temptations, our own jobs and vocations and family circumstances. And so for each of us, loving God with all of our life will look a little bit different. So I can't just tell you that to grow as a Christian, you've got to do X, Y, Z. It's not that simple. So here's our goal, here's what we are aspiring to, is that we are loving God with our whole being. We love God with our minds, with what we think, with our emotions, with our heart, with our soul, with our very being. It doesn't translate very well into English, but the sense is total, complete devotion to God. And that is what a mature Christian is, is someone who has been transformed by God to be more like Jesus, and Jesus loved God perfectly. So if we're going to be more like Jesus, we're going to be loving God, maybe not perfectly, but certainly that's what we're aiming at. Now, the Pharisees couldn't really argue with this. Uh, They would have agreed on paper that, oh, well, yeah, we we think that that's good. Yep, okay, so they can't really argue with it because then, of course, Jesus would turn around and say, well, who are you? You argue that we shouldn't love God. What kind of religious leaders are you? So they just kind of go quiet. And that's why the passage just kind of abruptly stops. There's no real more interaction. Once Jesus has explained what it is, he gives them the first and second greatest commandments and they kind of like, oh, okay. Can't say anything about that, I guess. And so the Pharisees, though, on paper, agreed with this. In practice, not so much. Uh, religion for them was a kind of keeping up appearances, the kind of thing that you would do to impress others, to get other people to love you, not so much about your devotion to God. Uh, the way that they would handle it was to do certain things that Jesus criticized. And as you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see more and more of that. But what Jesus is saying is that it's not an outward thing. Uh, it's not about what you wear or where you go on a Sunday or a Saturday and what food you eat. What's most important is your love for God. So anybody who's trying to make all these extra rules about how to do that is making your life more difficult. In fact, taking away your love for God and imposing man-made rules on other people. And so the Pharisees on paper agreed with Jesus, but in practice didn't live like that. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the temptation that we face is that as soon as we start making rules about what we can and cannot do, these things, rather than as a devotion to God, become our devotion Uh, We become so concerned with the external rules, uh, following what other people have said, that we forget why they were there in the first place. Uh, It might be that as we come into church, we have to bow or something. Well, if that's the focus then, 
it's not really on God because now what we do is we just become obsessed. Oh, this person didn't bow. Oh, that one bowed lower than me. Uh, there's a problem that we start getting focused on the rule itself and not on the God who we worship. And so that seems to be where the Pharisees have gone with this. Rather than taking Deuteronomy 6 as a, a guide for life, a way for us to remember to put God first, what they did was to adopt some of what those verses say and make them legally binding rules to follow. So have a look at Deuteronomy 6 and you'll see that there's instructions that God commands the people to uh, affix these commands to their doorposts and to tie them onto their arms and their foreheads. Now, if you go to the next slide, you'll see even today that Jews today and back then would have done this thing where they literally tie little black boxes with scriptures in them onto their arms and onto their heads. Uh, now, the problem, I think, with this is that this becomes the most important thing. Rather than using this as an aid to help people worship God, the Jews nowadays have invented so many rules about the exact placement on the body of these little black boxes called tefillin and how many times you've got to wrap the straps around your arms and the direction is it counterclockwise or clockwise around your arm and how many times should it go around your middle finger and how how long should it be and what material should it be made of and uh, exactly how big and how wide and how high should the boxes be and what should the boxes be made of all of these rules about how to stick God's word onto your body when I don't think that was ever the point the point was to get God's word into our lives so that we will live as God's people loving him rather than doing that I think what people nowadays have done and certainly what the Pharisees did was to take a practice that originally would have been designed to love God and they've taken it and made it the central focus, not God himself, but the actual practice itself is the thing they're worried about. Now just get this, I've got this from the website where I've got this photo of the guy attaching these little tefillin to his body. In order to be kosher, according to Jewish law, tefillin must meet thousands of requirements Think of them as a finely tuned spiritual machine. If one part is out of place, the whole thing won't work. I don't know what it does, but apparently if the scribe has made any mistakes on your little bit of paper and you put that on your body, it doesn't work. It's no longer God's word. And I thought, what a waste of time. The whole point of this exercise is for you to love God, not love sticking boxes on your head. <laughs> but that's not where we go with this. And the same thing with the commandment to attach God's word to your doorposts. They've got this other thing called a mezuzah, which is a great word. But it's a little box in which you put the scriptures in and you nail that little box onto the doorposts of your house because that's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Now, again... This is a quote from the website where I found this picture. Impress your guests whenever you display this exquisite designer mezuzah. 
from Iris Design. I'm sorry, impress who? Impress who? Your guests. Impress your guests with this box. It's not about God, is it? Impress God? No, impress your other people. They'll come along and say, oh, what a beautiful thing you've got on your door. And there's rules about how to stick these things on your doors. What angle should it be? And there was a debate between different rabbis. Some said it should be horizontal. Some said it should be vertical. So the compromise is now we stick it on at 45-degree angle. Why? How is this loving God? We're obsessing over the rules. We're obsessing over the external stuff. We're not doing what God's word says, which is to love God with our whole body. We're loving God, are we, by doing things to impress other people. And now these things may have some benefit if they are drawing people closer to God, but they're not. You can see where this goes when you add more and more and more and more external rules about how to live you miss the point. The greatest commandment is to love God with your whole life, not simply stick a box with some scriptures on your head occasionally. That sounds silly, but there are people who are devoted to this, thinking that this is what God wants them to do, that this is how they are to love God with their whole life, is to rigorously follow the rules and miss all the rest. But Jesus doesn't just say that we should love God with our whole life. He does. But remember in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And Jesus also has commanded his disciples to love one another. And that's why in our next section from verses 39 and 40, we see that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbours as ourselves. Again, this is not something that Jesus pioneered himself, but he took from the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19.18, the second half of that verse there says that we should love our neighbours as ourselves. We don't have grudges against other people. We don't try and trap people with trick questions, making them look... I'm sorry, that's what the Pharisees were doing, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that they're obsessing over all this stuff about how to trap Jesus... And Jesus quotes to them a verse that is kind of hinting that they're not doing this. They're not actually loving one another. They're not loving Jesus. They're trying to trap him. Isn't it interesting that he goes to this verse? Uh, The first half tells people not to have a grudge. And what do they do? Well, they've got a grudge against Jesus. The second half tells them they should love people. And what do they do? They're hating Jesus. If anybody needed to hear this, it was them. Now, this is the way God instructs us to live, though, is God first, loving him with our whole lives, and loving one another as ourselves. Uh, And again, we can't go into specifics on exactly how that would look. Different people have different things that they need, and we can meet them in different ways. But one of the best ways, I think, is to think of it as like a marriage because that's what God does with his people in the Old Testament and the New. When we get married, the initial wedding ceremony itself is pretty easy. It's great. Just say a few vows. doesn't take long. Exchange a couple of rings and walk out the door. It's great. Easy stuff. (laughs) Getting married is the easy bit. Staying married is much harder. You've got to love your spouse care for them, provide for them, love them sacrificially. And I'm not saying it's bad, it's good. 
But what I'm saying is this is what God wants for us. When we first come to faith in him, we may say a prayer or we might uh, confess our sins and turn to Jesus. Great. Good start. Then what? Well, we grow. We continue on in our relationship. It develops. It gets better. It gets deeper. But it requires a level of commitment. And so our discipleship pathway, if you can remember, starts with connect. And we're going to see here, starting with connect, when we come to saving faith, we find Christian community, then we grow in our faith. We don't just come to saving faith and then do nothing. We're now in this relationship with Jesus, and we're going to continue on with that. And as we grow, what does it look like? It looks like us getting better at loving God with our whole lives and loving our neighbours as ourselves. So as we heard in our kids' talk, whatever we do, it can be done for the glory of God. It can be done while we're loving God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.32, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now there's a lot of different words and ways to describe this, but I, I think the jargon sometimes is unhelpful. Sometimes it's good, and I think in this case, it is good. So we've got two words that we often throw around in Christian circles, uh, big words that end in shun. You might remember that a couple of years ago. Uh, justification is when we connect with Jesus, we've come to saving faith for the first time. Then what? Well, we grow, and that's our sanctification, the process by which we grow to be more like Jesus over time as God transforms us, and that's the goal of our Christian walk. We just looked at Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, Ephesians 4.15. Christian maturity is the goal so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth in the waves of false teaching. So our whole lives are needing to be focused on the love for God and love for one another. That's our grow phase in our pathway. Now that can be a tough thing and that is a big call to love God with our whole lives because that means not one area of our life should be exempt or outside of being devoted to God. The way that we speak and act and think, the relationships that we have or don't have, the kind of places we do or do not go, how we use our time, our talents, our treasures, our whole life devoting it to God can be hard because as we grow, I think it can be difficult. We can experience pain because often our sin is at the forefront of our minds. Our own sins and failures are the things that we call to mind more often than not. And I've said it's a bit like kids who experience growing pains and cramps as they experience a growth spurt. And I think that that's often the case for us that as we grow, we may experience growing pains, but it's often a good thing. Many plants, coming back to plants, they need pruning. They actually need to be cut back a little bit in certain areas so that the whole plant can thrive. We might sometimes have the unhealthy bits of our lives removed so that healthy new growth in a different area can occur. And I think it's the same thing with us. Right. God sometimes gives us hardship, gives us pain, difficulty, 
so that we learn to grow more like him. Sometimes we've got to cut off our old sinful habits and grow to be more like Christ. And that can be hard. That's the growing pains that we experience. But it is a valuable and integral part of the Christian walk. Remember, there's the justification and the sanctification. As we grow to be more like Jesus, sometimes it hurts when we're confronted with our own sin and our own need for Jesus. But be encouraged, we are growing more like Jesus through these experiences. As the Holy Spirit works in us, God transforms us to be more like Jesus. And although it's not only ever upwards in like a straight line, I think if you look at the next graph, it gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. As we grow to trust Jesus and be more like him, this is the kind of growth that we experience. Now, this is actually a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average from, from its inception, way back there in whatever year it was, 19-something. And you can see there's peaks and troughs, but if you draw the trend line, it's up. And if you think about that as the model for Christian life, you're getting close. Uh, it's not that every day we gradually only ever get more and more like Jesus. There are days and weeks and months and years that are hard. And you may find that, yeah, maybe we're not having a good time. That's normal. That's good, though, because we're recognizing, hey, in the midst of hardship, suffering, sin, whatever the case may be, there's an opportunity to be more like Jesus. And so the graph picks up and goes up again for a while until the next thing. But over the course of our lives, that's what we should expect to see is a gradual, over time, improvement in our Christ-likeness and in our Christian maturity. Um, this does sound hard and it sounds a bit confronting sometimes, but I want you to be encouraged because God has not left us alone. He doesn't say, okay, it's all on you, get busy, work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, he is at work in us and by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's very presence dwelling in us, making us more like Jesus, we can grow to be more like him. Although we won't be perfect this side of heaven, we certainly can and should expect to see Christian growth and maturity over time until the day we meet God face to face when Jesus returns. But until then, we've got a job to do, to grow in Christian faith as we love God, with all of our life, and love our neighbours as ourselves. Now let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you have saved us, that we are justified in your sight, having connected with Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that as we come to faith, you don't leave us alone, but give us your Holy Spirit, who grows us to be more like Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray, to grow to be more like him, as we learn to love you with our whole lives, our whole being, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.